0: Hi, I'm Phil Brooker, Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Liverpool, and this is the first episode in a new series of my Skylab Living and Working in Space podcast, where I'm reporting on a, a work-in-progress research project I'm currently undertaking into Skylab's uh, NASA's Skylab programme. I'll, I'll not go into why it's been so long between episodes, I did allude a bit to that in the, the little trailer I put out a short while ago, but suffice to say that even though the podcasting crawled to a halt, I've still been getting on with the research and a bit of writing for the book that's that's going to come out of this project. And I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this in a previous episode or not, but I did I, I did get a book contract uh, with Manchester University Press for a book called Living and Working in Space, an Ethnomethodological methodological study of Skylab. And I'm going to be submitting a completed version of that to them in 2023. So I'm working up the various different bits of that. So in future episodes, I'll be digging into the... Um, human factors aspects of, of Skylab by looking at the the videos produced by the astronauts um, where they're documenting and studying their own life and work aboard the space station and i'll also be looking at the the design specs and scientific reports that come out of that work to get a sense of how and why they construe life and work in space in the way they do but before we get into that, I wanted to do something a bit kind of different thematically and, and uh, I put out an episode on a completely different bit of spaceflight research I've been involved in with Wes Sharrock, which is a study of a particular moment in the goings-on of Apollo 13, which is uh, the NASA moon landing mission that never made it to the moon. And we've used the conversation transcripts that NASA kept of that mission to unpack some aspects of, of how the work of fixing a particular problem in the mission played out. Uh, And this is kind of apposite, like I'm recording this on November 16th, uh, 2022. And this is like, so not only is it like 49 years after the launch of Skylab 4, um, this morning was the launch of Artemis 1, which is the kind of the first sort of test of a a rocket that will take people to the moon again. So, you know, this is kind of apposite timing, in in my view. Um, Though I do appreciate that kind of it's probably a terrible way to kick off a, a new series with an episode that's not really anything to do with that series at all. Uh, but the reasoning is just to do with timing, really. Like I say, like it's it's kind of opposite, kind of, um, you know, in a nice way. But I, I've also got this book chapter that I, I wrote with Wes that's been submitted and accepted for a new collection. Um, and I was thinking, like, if I do a podcast episode on this, it'll probably help me ease back into the Skylab-specific stuff. So I'm rolling with that uh, so, th- so yeah, this chapter, this the Apollo 13 chapter is for a book that's hopefully coming out um, through 2023 or early 2024 This is an edited collection by Oscar Lindwall and Mike Lynch called Instructed and Instructive Actions Uh, And that collection brings together studies of uh, instructions, the work of giving and following them in lots of different domains. So from what I've seen, it's going to be a really great collection. I'm really pleased that our stuff on instructions in a particular moment of spaceflight history is going to be part of it. So I'll I'll leave the details of the book and the chapter in the show notes if anybody wants to follow up on it. Uh, And for now, yeah, let's get on with the topical content. Okay, so Apollo 13, I want to give a bit of a brief intro to the mission in general. So the, the work me and Wes have done for the book chapter I've just mentioned focuses on NASA's Apollo 13 mission, which is famous for being what NASA personnel have called their successful failure. So Apollo is this like much celebrated part of NASA's history. This was the program that landed people on the moon, uh, it famously in 1969's Apollo 11 mission um, and missions after that too. So I've I, you know, not got time to give a full history of Apollo, but suffice to say that after Apollo 11 had landed two astronauts on the moon and returned them and their command module pilot back to Earth safely. There's a few more uh, Apollo missions that were planned to follow it up with uh, subsequent moon landings. And most of these were very successful. But Apollo 13, which launched in April 1970, it was crewed by Jim Lovell, Jack Swiger and Fred Hayes. This mission had to abort midway through on its way to the moon and return to earth owing to an oxygen tank exploding in the command and service module that forms the living space of the ship. So obviously Apollo 13 never made it to the moon uh, or rather never made it to the kind of landing on the moon and the severity of the explosion meant that it was it was by no means guaranteed that the astronauts would even make it back to earth alive at all. There were plenty of emergencies that resulted from this exploded oxygen tank but I, what i want to do is elaborate the one that me and wes focus on to be kind of indicative of just how big a problem this was so roughly 56 hours into the mission the crew do this routine procedure to stir the oxygen in the tanks which sit outside of the command and service module the csm and this stirring ignited some damaged teflon wiring insulation which causes the tank to rapidly pressurize and explode Um, The explosion damages loads of other stuff on the CSM, including the second oxygen tank, parts of the interior of the ship, uh, and other protective shielding materials that are on the outside of the ship. And naturally, this is a big deal. Oxygen is a really important part of a spaceflight mission because this provides the astronaut crew with breathable air for the entirety of their flight. If the oxygen is leaking out into space, they may suffocate. But also, oxygen was used as a chemical component of the batteries that powered the ship as well so a lack of oxygen also means that the ship is going to run out of power uh, entirely um m- kind of much quicker than it should uh, and given that batteries powered all sorts of stuff including navigational program and landing routines well this is a major deal in itself because this is a ship that's like hurtling out of control away from earth um with a very fast depleting source of breathable air but of course like the crew do have ground support to help them figure out what to do and mission control gend up a plan for, for rationing electrical power and keeping the breathable atmosphere long enough for a ship to loop around the moon reorient itself to earth and follow a survivable re-entry trajectory. Now, in order to do this, they got a retreat from the damaged CSM, that's the live kind of you know normal living space of the of the ship to the lunar module, which is the landing device that would land on the moon. Uh, which is called the LEM, uh, otherwise known as Aquarius. Um, and this was this is the machine that's designed to take two crew members down to the surface of the moon from lunar orbit for for a two-day trip. So instead of having to sustain two people for two days the LEM now has to host all three crew for their four-day return to earth so they're kind of like you know packed in to this this tiny space which is not designed to suit uh, the purpose this in itself is a a problem but here's where mine and Wes's focus come in so like one tool for keeping the breathable atmosphere aboard uh, these ships were the lithium hydroxide canisters on both the CSM and the LEM which I think acted like a kind of chemical sponge soaking up carbon dioxide that the crew were breathing out, and which is poisonous when you breathe it in. So these, these are devices designed to keep the air clean. However, as the Lemons CSM were designed by two different engineering firms, those firms didn't bother to make the lithium dioxide canisters compatible across both ships. That wasn't planned. That wasn't envisaged as being a necessary th- thing to do. So while the crew technically have plenty of canisters that they can use... To support them for their return ship the ones designed for the now derelict csm couldn't be fitted to the sockets built into the LEM. it was like literally a case of 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 trying to find a way to fit a square peg into a round hole so like i say this was just one of the emergencies that the crew and mission control had to deal with on apollo 13. they were kind of beset with these really difficult issues continually though since the explosion like really difficult and high stakes stuff um Speaking to just this, this one emergency though, what the ground team did here was was use their knowledge of the inventory of the ship to rapidly put together like a jerry-rigged device back on ground that would let the crew um, in principle fit their square CSM canisters onto the round LEM sockets such that they could do the job of keeping the limited supply of oxygen breathable by the crew. So mine and Wes's interest then is in how the instructions for building that bricolage device make it up from the ground to the astronaut crew via their Capcom Joe Kerwin, who was uh, later to fly on Skylab two as it goes. And and this this kind of forms like a moment of sort of almost improvised instructive and instructed action that takes NASA far outside of its usual mode of operations, which are more typically. Um, Characterized by sort of tightly prescribed checklists and schedules. So that's probably enough of an intro to to Apollo 13. I'm going to dig into the transcripts at this point, and I'll leave a link to those transcripts that we used for this piece of research in the show notes. And if it's possible to do so, it's probably a good idea to follow along with the transcripts as you listen to the podcast, if that's possible. Um, but from here, I'll just kind of get on with describing just what the transcripts tell us went on over this period that the crew and ground team were working on building and installing this device uh, to this, this lithium hydroxide scrubber kind of um, attachment device. So, just a few details then. Um, these the events that I'm going to talk about they take place about 90 hours into the mission. They're over, and, and they take place over about a 70 minute stretch on the 15th of April, 1970. Uh, and the speakers captured on the transcript include the Capcom, Joe Kerwin, who's, who's feeding astronauts info from the ground. He's designated CC. Uh, and there's the astronaut crew, which comprise Commander Jim Lovell, designated as CDR, Command Module Pilot Jack Swigert to CMP, and Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes. I don't think Fred Hayes features in the transcript necessarily, but he's, he would be designated LMP um and i'll just kind of like now get into a description of what the transcripts elaborated in mine and wes's understanding and we can kind of figure things out as we go so the excerpt we're looking at begins at 03 17 in the transcripts which these numbers just refer to like the third mission day the 17th hour 58th minute and 23rd second so a little before 6 pm gmt on on mission day three And here, we get CC speaking as Houston, uh, contacting the crew of the Aquarius with CDR answering. And CC checks the quality of the signal in prep for delivering the instructions for building this bricolage CO2 scrubber device. And CDR gets back to CC at 03.18.07.46 to say that Jack, the CMP, is grabbing his helmet and headset ready to take the instructions. So CDR at this point has a proposal method for CC to deliver the instructions over the radio, which is um, that he wants to give his own headset, headphones and microphone to CMP for the purposes of, of him being able to listen directly to the instructions and copy them down to paper as the first step. And this is kind of so like CDR is not having to sort of, you know, act as a middleman uh, and kind of parrot the instructions over to CMP I think, but CC advances a counter proposal because he can see, like he's he's the guy on ground who can see the pre-formulated instructions that he's got to hand, which reflects how the mission control team have have specifically designed these instructions. And CC says here, I'll just read it out. The way I thought it might be best to do it would be to have you gather the equipment and let us talk you through your procedure while you do it. Now, maybe you could give Jack, who's CMP, the headset and and get the equipment together and we'll talk you through the procedure. I think it'll be a little easier to do that way if you tried to copy it all down than if you tried to copy it all down and then go do it. And Cece agrees to this proposal. So the, the, I mean, the upshot of all this kind of setting up, To talk to one another is that CDR and CC are on a direct line to one another while other astronaut crew members can float about the ship, finding bits and bobs of objects required for the device as CC feeds that info to CDR. And this is kind of important in that it speaks to the need for the instructions that are delivered to be handled in particular ways. Which CC has an understanding of, as he's got the kind of situational awareness of being able to see what the instructions contain, and also see a see a kind of like mock up of what the device should look like, which the astronauts, of course, don't yet have themselves. Um, So at this point, then O three eighteen O nine seventeen in the transcripts, CC begins to list the relevant equipment to CDR, saying, "Okay, I think the equipment you'll need will be the two command module." Lithium hydroxide canisters, a roll of the grey tape, the two LCGs, because we're going to use the bags from the LCGs, and one LM Lunar Module cue card One of those cardboard cue cards which you will cut off an inch and a half out from the ring. Now, I think that's all we'll need. Over. So, me and Wes think that uh, LCGs refers to liquid cool garments, which are kind of like the underwear that astronauts wear between their... You know, the pressurised spacesuits that to help regulate their temperatures while they're they're doing spacewalks outside the ship. So obviously now that the moon landing plans have been cancelled, there's no need for these garments. They're not going to be used. So they're kind of fair game as materials for a bricolage device. (laughs) Um, So CDR at this point reads the list back to CC, which is kind of a way of opening up opportunities for corrections and checking for accuracy. Um, and this is, this is kind of um, a recurring bit of interactional design throughout the episode, this notion of repeating back what you've just heard to invite corrections and clarifications. And it's perhaps especially relevant here because if you screw something up with some of the materials that you've got, well, there's only a limited supply aboard the spaceship. There's no possibility of getting any more. Um, so it really does matter that the things um, you've been told have been heard fully and, uh, and in the precise wording that they were given. Okay so with all that equipment listed and copied back CC then asks CDR to begin prepping some items starting with the LMQ card So this is like a little cardboard slip um, there's kind of like a Rolodex almost of these cardboard slips that gives sort of abbreviated instructions for operating all sorts of stuff on, on the LEM. And again, like, you know, the crew are not using the LEM to land on the moon. So these these procedures for moon landing, you know, which buttons to press and in which order, the crew don't need these anymore. They're no, they're no longer going to be doing that work. So CC says if you'll just cut the cue card which is a handy piece of stiff paper the right size about an inch and a half from the rings just cut off the ring holes in other words and you'll have a card about 11 inches long and probably six inches wide something like that cdr relays this information to cmp who goes to collect all the items and then work on the cue card which takes about 10 minutes um but there seems to be like a recognition on cc's part in the way he delivers these instructions that the activity is kind of like um what garfinkel lynch and livingston have called like the construction of a potter's object so a potter's object being an item whose nature is unknown at the time to the crew at least but cc asks the crew to begin their work on it in a way that will help the crew gradually develop and reveal the context of that object as it's created and this is done by reference to things like the properties of objects where the usage of those objects is non-intuitive so for instance it's pretty obvious that the crew will need the CSM lithium hydroxide canisters for this device but it's not obvious uh, as to how and why they might need a cardboard cue card because that is taking that that object outside of its kind of primary purpose So CC takes a bit of extra time to explain what properties of this object are ultimately going to be relevant It's the size uh, of the object, it's 11 inches by 6 and it's also the stiffness um, But also it's kind of flexible, you can bend it So um, just how these objects will fit together in the end cannot be talked about yet But the crew have got at least enough detail to kind of begin to orient themselves to it in a new way Um, So now CMP's collected all the items, he's brought them to the communications panel, he's done the cutting of the cardboard cue card and... um He's also taken the headset microphone off off CDR so that CMP is now talking directly to CC so that he can follow instructions that he's given. And CC kicks this period off at at 3.18.22.50 by saying, okay, I'm ready to start into the procedure. When you answer me back, speak up. Speak up into the microphone because our downlink is pretty noisy the first thing we want you to do and we'll do this on one canister and then let you go ahead and repeat it on the second so take one of the lcgs and cut off the outer bag by cutting along one of the heat seals do it carefully and close to the heat seal because we may have to use the outer bag if we damage the inner bag so go ahead and do that and then we'll do our next step now there's quite a few important points to mention about this so cc does a lot here to establish just how the instruction is to be followed For one thing, he gives some technical detail on the noisy downlink uh, and what he and the crew might do to counteract it. Basically, he's asking the crew to just speak louder and the knowledge of the need to do so will kind of implies that he's doing the same from back on ground. And there's also setting up for the instructions in the sense that it's noted that CC will guide the astronauts through completing one of these two devices and then leave them to do the second on their own. The implication being that if you have the instructions and they're the same for both devices... If you've successfully completed one then you've got the know-how to do the second also um cc also seems to be aiming for specificity rather than leaning on indexicals here so this idea of like atomizing what was previously known as an lcg bag into component parts which includes an outer bag um that i think isn't needed an inner bag with a heatsea that they will be using and so on um at the same time he's providing detail on the methods for completing the work with info like being careful when cutting near the heat seal um in reference to the implications that this would have on the task um incidentally cc doesn't aim for full prescription here though so like even though there's kind of like a focus on specificity in some areas um he doesn't specify for instance that scissors are required to do the cutting Uh, Rather, CC assumes that the astronauts will know and do this. So I think scissors was kind of specified, like you will need the scissors for this job, initially in the list of ingredients almost. But using the scissors here is not specified. Uh, And that's kind of interesting, I thought, like especially when thinking about the relationship of these emergency instructions and instructed actions to NASA's usual approach to, to building checklists on the basis of like omnipotency. Okay, so after a minute or so of cutting the bag, CMP announces that he's completed it, which invokes an opportunity for CC to proceed with the next instruction and kind of leads also to a tidying up task. So CC says uh, 03 18 26 22, okay Jack, now you uh, can put the LCG itself, that is take it out of the inner bag, put it in the outer bag and stow it someplace. We recommend you one, but you can stow it wherever it's convenient. So CMP then kind of like hands this job off to a crew member so he can stay in the seat and on the line. Um, it doesn't matter who does the tidy up task as it's kind of identifiable as being ancillary to and other than building the device. What does matter is that the redundant garment is put somewhere that it's not going to get in the way. Because this would be a, like a particular hazard for space vehicles um, because of you know, zero gravity. Um, you don't want things floating around and getting in the way. So we've got a nice bit here about how CC helps the crew to orient to what we might call the familiar strange in, in our field. Um, which for me sort of displays their shared visual orientation as this ongoing accumulative achievement. Bearing in mind that the only tool they have is talk over the radio. They can't show each other anything visually. And this this period begins at 03.18.26.50. And with CC saying, OK, now pick up one of the lithium hydroxide canisters and let me describe which end is which. It's approximately square on one, one of the vented flat ends. Has the strap and that's the end we call the top. The end we, opposite we call the bottom. Is that clear? Over. So this is a kind of like elaborated description and and taxonomization of a plastic bag, but it's important to focus on these details. Oh, sorry, rather of of the canister itself, but it is important to focus on these details to attune to like CMP seeing the properties of an object, which might otherwise uh, go unnoticed. So these objects have to be recognisable in the same way by both parties. And this is not just the canisters, but the bags and the cue cards and so on. Um, Otherwise, the instructions that follow that put them to to use will crumble. So, for instance, bags will be cut in the wrong places and cue cards will be cut in the wrong ways. And ultimately, it might make the device fail. So, again, this is like high stakes stuff. And it's no surprises then that CC also wants to hear it from the crew, that they have a clear sense of how to orient the device by inviting these questions and clarifications. He says, literally, is that clear over? As in, I've stopped talking, it's over to you. Um... The next instruction after this shows CC outlining that the crew need to take two lengths of duct tape and, in CC's words, about three feet long or a good arm's length to create two belts around the side of the canister. Uh, And they're instructed to do this sticky side out so the device can be fixed to the wall later on. Um, CC also notes the tape's got to be as tight as possible. And he says, it'll probably take both of you, by which he means CMP and CDR, to get it nice and snug. And that's at 318.27.37. So again, he's kind of like elaborating an instruction with additional detail on the methods for its completion, since this instruction has a different element than the others, which is that it requires two people. So like, you know, it, it this instruction being a bit of an oddity, it requires something something more in its explanation. Um. Now, there's a lengthy follow-up from CC at 03 18 30, which I'll read out too. And he says, the next step now is to anchor that tape. And the way we want you to do that is to cut about a two foot length off the roll and then tear it lengthwise. So that you have two strips about two feet long and about half an inch wide. And you'll wrap those around the canister at right angles, more or less, to the tape that you've got so that it goes across the top and across the bottom. And when it goes across the top and the bottom, put it so that it's outboard of the center hole and try to get it over one of the ridges between the screens so that it won't block the flow. Is that clear? Over. CMP acknowledges receipt of this instruction, which again also provides its sense by incorporating context for the device. So they're doing this quite specifically so the tape doesn't blow the flock of air, uh, the 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 flow of air rather it doesn't blow doesn't block the flow of air but rather than read the whole lot back to CC as they'd done before presumably because there's lots of steps CMP instead commentates his activities over the radio while he's doing them, so for instance at 3.18.34.22 he says, "Okay, I've got to cut length here, and we'll tear it lengthwise. And I'm going to go r- around right here at this ridge, all the way around at right angles, and anchor it." So he's kind of doing that live commentary rather than repeating it back a priori of doing the work. Um. So that's kind of interesting in and of itself, but also the indexicals that that CMP use here work sort of work on the assumption that CC has got a device that he can see in front of him, um, and so like in that sense. CC can follow what CMP is commentating by looking at his own device to follow its topography, uh, such that when CC when CMP rather says that there's a ridge here, CC can either see that ridge himself and let CMP carry on, or if not, jump in and ask CMP to you know hold up, explain more, check the instructions are being followed correctly. So there's criteria for evaluation sort of built into this and on-, on display throughout um similarly one next step after this is when cc instructs the crew in affixing the cardboard cue card to the emerging device and this is at 03 18 37 32 when cc says the next step is to get the eva cue card and use it to form an arch over the top of the canister just took one short end under one ridge on the top the other one against the ridge on the other side so that it forms a rounded arch over the top of the canister you see jack what we're going to do is slip the bag over this whole assembly and the cue card will serve to keep the bag from being sucked down against the screen over. And basically, interactionally, that's sort of the same thing again. so th- this idea of like context specificity that uh, giving the instructions um, alongside their ultimate purpose and logic. So there's this verbal description of visual aspects that in part help the crew orient to these familiar objects like a cardboard cue card differently. Um, that kind of thing. So, again, at 318.43.41, CC says uh, the next step is to stop up the bypass hole, which is the hole in the center of the bottom of the canister. We want to stop that up because we don't want to bypass the flow. And I forgot to tell you to get something to stick in that hole. We recommend that you either use a wet wipe or cut off a piece of sock and stuff it in there, or you could probably even crumble up some tape and use that over. Much the same sort of thing here, except it also kind of seems that the notion of the purpose of the instruction seems to matter even more here. Uh, CC kind of says that the people on the ground don't really care what material is used to stop up this bypass hole, and that's for the crew to decide. And ultimately, if I remember right, I think they actually don't, don't take any of CC's suggestions anyway. They actually go with like a snipped up piece of towel as this kind of material for plugging up a bypass hole. So overall to this 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 point we've got a sense in which all of these task components, the taping of the canister, the affixing of a cue card, the plugging of a bypass hole, all of this relies on the astronaut's capacity to make sense of the instructions in terms of what they're designed to achieve, rather than as isolated and isolatable atomized tasks. And this is achieved by working to share and orientation so like speaking about visual properties like ridges uh, providing opportunities for requests for clarification checkpoints on the successive task components being designed in things like that from here there is a bit of tidying up and prepping the bag by cutting a hole through which to feed a hose that's going to carry the air but i'll kind of brush past that for the sake of keeping things a bit more trim than they might otherwise be i think suffice to say here though that the instructions start to become a bit more risky Uh, In as much as the crew are now being asked to do things to components of this device that can't be undone. So for instance, like cutting a hole in a plastic bag, um, which is designed to kind of like um, seal something. Like there has to be a hole cut, but you have to make sure that hole is cut just right. Um, Also cutting two hoses out of a spacesuit umbilical card, things like that. And maybe it's kind of interesting then that these more sort of equipment damaging destructive tasks are done at this stage. Like if we're trying to answer a question as to why this now, then maybe one answer is that the crew now have enough detail on the logic and purpose of these components uh, that they can see what they need to do, but also what they shouldn't do in terms of actions that are going to destroy the equipment and ultimately make the device fail. Maybe that's a bit speculative, though. I'm not sure if there's anything to be done with that. But on, on the hoses specifically, there is something interesting about the verbal decomposition of a piece of equipment in a way that maps onto how the equipment is to be decomposed physically, too. And then an example of this is when CC says at 03 18 I don't know whether this has been done already, but if it hasn't, what you have to do is cut the outer beater cloth sheath down the full length of the of the hoses and then also cut the rubber ties that secure the two red and blue hoses together and the hoses should come apart and the comb cable should should come off. So here you've got um what CC is asking them to do is effectively cut the outer lining of um the the one of the hoses that connects a um a, a crew member when they're doing some like outside work on the ship to back to the ship and feeds them air. Um, obviously, again, th- those they're not expecting to use this equipment, so it's okay to cut it up. But just how to cut it up is what they're talking about. So you've got like CC is here, kind of decomposing an astronaut's pressure suit umbilical cord into a sheath and two internal hoses. Again, this is not something that the crew may have bothered to attend to previously. They will know, that, uh, you know how these hoses work, um, but partly what is trying to get them to see is, is like, let's think about this umbilical cord in a different way. Um, and partly that is done by like the verbal description, which dissects the cord conceptually um, in a way that ultimately kind of maps onto what they're going to do physically with a pair of scissors. So the last instruction of this uh, device then involves CMP cutting a diagonal hole in the LCG bag into which one of these umbilical hoses can be fed and then the hose and the bag are taped together. This last operation takes about 10 minutes and CMP announces at 3 19, 10, that, okay, our do-it-yourself lithium hydroxide canister change is complete. Joe, who's CC, the only thing different is that our arch on this piece of cardboard is not big enough to position the red hose with the inlet down. And the inlet, the inlet too, the red hose is lying on its side. But I think it'll still work. So this does double duty, really, in, in terms of demonstrating that CMP... Uh, has a good working knowledge of the device in reference of what it's designed to achieve so he's kind of saying like i know it's not what you said but i think it's going to work anyway because i can see how this device works now um but it also invites corrections and amendments from cc if that's not the case so the idea of like well if cc knows that the inlet the, the inlet um switch needs to be uh, in the down position, like, fully, then he can correct CMP at this time and request that they maybe take another cardboard cue card and, and figure that one out. Um, ultimately, though, they don't have to do that because CC C- C agrees that this should work. So from here, then... We've got a completed device and the crew move on to talk about installing it correctly which involves things like configuring the hoses to circulate the air properly as in where to place them on the ship so they're not just breathing in the air that they're breathing out um you know on a, on a sort of cyclic basis and also scheduling some time to build the second device so um it's kind of like the you know in, in the chapter i think i said you know like this I, I gave a little section heading to little fanfare a completed device is built and it it kind of seems a bit of uh, you know a bit anticlimactic perhaps but it isn't much of a surprise that the crew do kind of almost immediately move on to discussing these next steps because you know bear in mind that there's no time for the crew to sort of rest or pat themselves on the back given the nature of the emergencies they're dealing with but for now they have come to a point of completion on this specific task at least. Okay, so that about brings the description of the task related stuff to a close. I think I did kind of whiz through a lot of stuff quickly. But again, if you've got the transcripts and followed along, then that's um, probably going to help clarify some of, you know, and and slow things down a little bit, at least. Um, What I want to do at this point is start to do a bit of summing up and a bit of discussion as to why me and Wes thought this was an interesting example of instructed action to focus on. So summing up then, uh, there's been a lot of reference to features of instructed action on display in the transcripts. And I'll headline these here too. So the things we were interested in is like how the logic and purpose of a task features in its communication and execution. That's a necessary part of delivering instructions and designing them. Um, We also focused a bit on like how boundaries on the beginnings and endings of specific tasks render those tasks discrete but interdependent on one another. Um, and we also focused on like the management and pacing of specific tasks that's largely done by the, the interactional design of building in checkpoints on understanding and performance at relevant moments. And the use of verbal descriptions as heuristics for task completion, such as ensuring a shared notion of like something like where the sides of a bag are, and so on. you know, Where's the top of the device? What are we going to call the top? What's the bottom? That kind of thing. So we get this sense then, as per lots of other ethnomethodological studies, and Garfinkel and Suchman jump out as, as good examples of this, but genuinely you'll find this stuff in lots of EM studies, um, we get a sense that instructions don't prescribe the work to put them to use comprehensively, but rather instructions must be made to work by people who are uniquely and adequately placed to do that. And there's a kind of corollary to this too, in that ad hoc is pretty central to the entire thing too. So all throughout, the instructions are kind of fed to the astronauts in this sequentially organised way, with lots remaining unspecified until it needed to be specified. Um the specific material for plugging the bypass hole, for instance, or exactly how and when to place the hoses to circulate freshly scrubbed air through the ship. And again, this this um, seems to brush up awkwardly against the typical NASA mode of like pre-prescribing everything through highly specified checklists. One of my favorite Garfinkel quotes helps us dig into this, and Garfinkel says "To treat instructions as though ad hoc features in their use were a nuisance or to treat their presence as grounds for complaining about the incompleteness of instructions is very much like complaining that if the walls of a building were only gotten out of the way, one could see better what was keeping the roof up there's no better need uh, sorry there's no better display of the need uh, to account for the ad hoc aspects than the fact that even when time is at such a premium and emergencies are so high stakes, will NASA schedule like a full 70 minutes of CC and CMP's focused collaboration on the building of this device rather than just kind of quickly reading the instructions up to the ship to be copied down with pen and paper. In fact, when that was suggested by one of the astronauts, it was rejected right at the beginning. We're not going to do that. That's not a good way to do this. Um, because NASA... With the instructions in front of them, they know how this is how uh, that this is how instructions work and can be made to work, even though the instructions that they normally deal with in normal circumstances kind of form an ambient background to spaceflight operations when they 're proceeding smoothly um, which sort of leads to my other interest in, in this as well so what use could a study like this have is a question I wanted to 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 answer like why bother doing an ethnomethodological study of um, spaceflight operations and I'm not sure I've got like a complete set of answers here but perhaps um, perhaps one possible answer would be that the methods of doing instruction are something that are not typically focused on by NASA they sort of take that for granted uh, they they do a lot of serious work in it but they don't focus on it in in, in a way that suggests um, that retains the importance of this like in normal space operations and um, non-emergency space operations and um, So maybe those of you that remember the first series of this podcast remember that in Skylab, for instance, by the time that the mission was in flight, the instructions that the astronauts had in front of them were treated as already settled. They're not up for discussion anymore. Things had been worked out in fine detail through many, many hours of planning and training on ground such that the instructions cannot and should not be an open area of investigation in flight. But, of course, this doesn't work out so well for Skylab. The accumulation of instructions in the form of this tightly packed schedule doesn't leave room for all the ad hoc in required to get the instructions done and be made to work. So each astronaut crew has a really hard time following those instructions and keeping to that schedule. And this sort of culminates in the difficulties experienced by the third crew which saw the crew having to step in and force the ground team to have this open discussion as to how to reorganize and revisit those plans to make their instructions and their schedules uh, more possible and sustainable. Now this kind of suggests to me that an ethnomethodological focus on instructed action and just how this work is achievable in flight, that would be a really useful tool to bed into NASA and other space agencies operations. Uh, especially so as they're currently planning longer duration and longer distance missions where astronaut activities are going to be increasingly difficult to plan out in full detail in advance. So, for instance, I mentioned right at the start, the Artemis programme is a very near future thing. We've had the first launch of an Artemis rocket just this morning of November 16th. and. So the astronauts that will be returning to the moon are already being trained. And some are seeing this as kind of like a stepping stone to think about the next space station after the International Space Station, um, which may well be something like a lunar gate orbiting the moon. Uh, some are even talking about crewed missions to Mars. But whether or not these end up happening, um, even the missions and vehicles we have now seem to indicate it's it's not a scalable or workable idea to try to preempt and solve problems of human spaceflight activities by building more and more detailed checklists. So one example I like of this is kind of around um, uh, discussions of 3D printing aboard the ISS for for the in-house production of items um, to replace damaged or missing components. So this is, so like you've got these 3D printers aboard the space station and there are currently kind of plans to see how they might be used to um, to, to kind of print off new bits of kits rather than have it delivered up from ground for things like, you know, screws that have gone funny or, you know, tiny 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 bits and bobs that are essential. Um, but it would be better if, the, if there could be a kind of supply of them on the space station. So this 3D printing kind of... Um, this in-house sort of production of, of equipment has to be done by astronauts autonomously and more independently from ground. Um, because the technical and procedural information held by ground teams may no longer reflect the situational context of the ISS as a kind of lived-in environment. So here's a quote from the a, a European Space Agency news piece that says a bit more. Um, Typically, the actual design work for out-of-Earth manufacturing would be done on the ground, but it is important that those on the ground have an accurate picture of conditions in space. Alexander, Alexander Gerst, who's this ESA, European Space Agency ISS astronaut, Uh, Alexander gave the example of his Russian colleagues trying to apply plastic coverings to renew the internal wall surfaces of the service module, but finding that some of the shapes that had been produced did not match the reality after two decades in orbit and had to be modified to fit. So... Maybe space stations are kind of reaching the limits of their specificity-oriented approach, and they have to start reframing how they think about this to allow astronauts more input and control over the instructions that are designed to support them, and which they have to carry out. So bringing EM to the table as a way of looking at these things seems to me quite a useful thing to do. And the hope is, or one of the hopes uh, that I'm kind of bringing to this, is that mine and Wes's chapter... And this podcast episode and the the work I'm doing more generally kind of demonstrates why this might be a useful conversation for space agencies and ethnomethodologists to have. Um, Something I'm also keen to explore, this raises interesting questions as to what an EM practitioner and or an ethnographer might do. with a physical presence aboard a space station mission, like as a fieldwork site, as practitioners whose work is perhaps best done by getting as close to these activities as possible. So and something like an in-situ ethnographer to help clarify and find resolutions for problems pertaining to the everyday life and work of operating a space station, for instance. And this is something me and Effie Lemoyne are, are digging into in a project I'll, I'll probably elaborate on in another episode, but I'm going to leave that as a bit of a cliffhanger for now. Okay, so thanks for listening. I, I think that's it for this episode. And the next one may well be a return to Skylab and a focus on, the, like, like I say, the more designy, human human-factors-y sort of type of stuff of my research. Um, or I'm also kind of, uh, hoping to, that I can interview Effie Lamonian about, um, a more sort of human computer interaction focus on these issues. So maybe that'll be in, in, in the next episode or one shortly coming thereafter. I'm not really sure, but either way, like I'm hoping to get back into the podcast on a more regular basis. So hopefully it's not going to be too long before the next one is with you, whatever it is. Uh, thanks very much for listening i'm still on twitter using the handle at pdbrooker, but i'm probably more reachable on on mastodon now where you can find me under at pdbrooker at uh, the theme music and stings used in this podcast series are from something related and caught in the beat by broke for free both of these are distributed under a creative commons license thanks very much catch you in the next one